Welcome to Knowing Nature. I'm your host, Victor. And in this podcast, I speak with other environmental educators about their experiences, practices, and perspectives on helping people to connect with the natural world. In this episode, I reached out to the Bumblebee Conservation Trust, and I'm joined by Dr. Richard Comont to talk about the trust and the different citizen science projects they're involved with. Globally, there are around 16,000 known species of bees in seven biological families. This includes well-known groups like honeybees and bumblebees, which live socially in colonies. However, most, more than 90%, are actually solitary, which means that while they might nest close together, they do not nest and lay eggs within a single structure. In the UK, there are around 275 species of bee and bumblebee. This level of variety makes them a great group for public engagement projects and citizen science. There's enough variety and geographic specificity to make monitoring by the few professional ecologists out there very difficult. But there's not so much variation that it becomes difficult for people to submit reliable information. Bees are also a generally quite well-liked group of animals with increasingly recognized importance for their role in pollination. Many species are also easily recognized, and bees include some really charismatic characters, especially in the bumblebees. Here's my interview with Dr. Richard Comont from the Bumblebee Conservation Trust. Today we're talking about bumblebees and citizen science and with me to talk about this is Dr. Richard Comont, Science Manager at the Bumblebee Conservation Trust and Honorary Research Fellow at the University of Worcester. Welcome to the show, Richard. Hi Victor, thanks for having me. It's your first time on the show, would you be able to introduce yourself to us? What got you interested in nature and how you got involved with the Bumblebee Conservation Trust? It's always been something that I've been interested in. My dad was a county council ecologist for Bedfordshire County Council for many years. Um, my grandparents farmed just outside Dartmoor down in Devon. So wildlife was what we did. We'd go on holidays and it would be to see interesting things and walk in interesting places. And so it was always something that I wanted to work in. At the end of the day, working in an office never really appealed. And I went through the university system. I did environmental biology at Plymouth, um, down, again, down on the other edge of Dartmoor, and then ended up, via a slightly convoluted process, doing a PhD with the Centre of Ecology and Hydrology on um, invasive ladybird species. I did quite a lot of fieldwork as part of that and learned how to work with citizen science data sets and the processes that go into those, um, working with the Biological Records Centre at CEH, who lead on that side of things within the UK. And so just as I finished and as I handed in my PhD, the job came up to basically do the same kind of thing at the Bumblebee Conservation Trust, BBCT, to lead their citizen science schemes, to analyse the data and to work to really try and get a better handle on what bumblebees do, how they're doing in Britain. And I've been doing it ever since, basically. That was back in 2013, so it's coming up to eight years now. Wow. Yeah. And every so often I, when I hear someone talking about citizen science, they say it like it's this brand new thing. But actually, a, a lot of these schemes have been going for quite a number of years now. It's, it's pretty well established. Yeah. And BRC celebrated their 50th anniversary six or seven years ago now. And obviously, records in the databases go back to 16th, 17th, 18th century. The term citizen science is new, but the actual process, the activity really isn't. 
I, I guess I would describe it as non-professionals submitting recordings to some more centralized database. Is that pretty fair? It gets really nebulous, but yeah, basically it's volunteers. So some of them are professionals in their day-to-day life, sometimes even on the same kind of thing. We have staff at BBCT who walk B-walks and contribute citizen science records on their days off and that kind of thing. But yeah, it's basically volunteer activity to generate those records and record the sightings of what people see. Which is really important, particularly when you're talking about things that are as varied and tiny as insects and other invertebrates, um, because there's just so many of them and they can be so uh, localized in their occurrences, I guess. It's it's more eyes out there is, is always helpful, I guess. Massively so. I mean, just looking at insects, they vary massively within the year, between years. Insects generally have a, at most a sort of annual life cycle. So the numbers that you have for one year don't really tell you very much about what happens the next year or the year after. You need that continuity of surveying. You need people out there pretty much constantly to be able to know what's going on in a way that perhaps you don't with longer lived species where you can get away with more separated surveys time-wise but yeah really the more the better and the more people going out and recording their sightings the more information we have the more we know about what's actually going on and so the bumblebee conservation trust is involved in um, they've got a few different citizen science schemes that i've i've seen there's the bee walks there's the uk pollinator monitoring scheme and then there's the kind of more ad hoc use of assorted sort of citizen science sites like iRecord or iSpot. Could you give us a a breakdown of those schemes? Our sort of gold standard, if you like, is the BeeWalk scheme. This is designed to be a fairly standardized monitoring scheme so that we can do more with the data. Basically, volunteers go out and walk a set route, a transect, at least once a month between March, when the bees are just coming out of hibernation, right the way through until October when the daughter queens are just starting to go back into hibernation. So you get the full life cycle of the bees each year. Um, And because it's standardised, we know that people have gone out and have done those walks. We can be a little bit more clever about how we do the analysis. We can be, because we know someone has been out looking and we know that they've been following a certain protocol to record all the bumblebees that they see and that sort of thing. We can be pretty happy that if they haven't seen, if they haven't recorded something, it's because they haven't seen it. And that gives us license to do a lot more with those results. If we just have the casual records, they're still really valuable. It's still a record of a bee in a place on a date. There's still a lot that you can do with that when you have hundreds or thousands of them, as we do. But it does make it a little bit more difficult to assess whether something wasn't there at that point, because you don't know if people didn't see it because it wasn't there or didn't see it because they weren't looking for it and there's a big difference if you are looking for something and you spend a lot of time looking for something and you don't find it that's far more likely to be because it's not there than if you just had a bit of a glance and you happen to see something as you were parked in the car park or something but you really didn't have a thorough rummage around you weren't really looking for species x or whatever so be walk gives us a lot more context to those sightings and that means that we can be uh, slightly more advanced with some statistics we do. But those ad hoc sightings, the casual sightings that go into iRecord and are collected by the Beeswolf Finance Recording Society um, and we partner with them are really, really useful. It's 
still the main way that we know the range of sites that you find species on and that kind of thing because um it's obviously far easier to go to a site on one day have a bit of a look around record what's there go to another site the next day do that same process than it is to set up a much more in-depth standardized monitoring transect on each of those sites there just aren't the people <laughs> in Britain yeah. to be able to do that and then sitting slightly in between we have the pollinator monitoring scheme which we're part of, uh, along with a whole range of other organisations, including the Bees, Wasps and Ants Recording Society that I mentioned, but also CEH, various universities and that kind of thing. And that came originally to try and pull together all of the data which we were working on and collecting separately. So to try and get the maximum benefit out of all the data that was being collected, and also to do a little bit more standardisation in some of that broader data collection. Uh, so on pollinators generally rather than just bumblebees which is what our recording focuses on and the POMS recording comes at two levels the first of those is fit counts flower insect time counts which is designed to be very very simple for anyone to do as a school or at a bioblitz event or whatever or just pop out on your lunchtime and that's basically just find a little patch of flowers that fits within them um, half a meter by half a meter sit next to that for 10 minutes and see what turns up and that's at a really broad group level so how many bumblebees how many wasps how many flies how many butterflies you don't need much in the way of specialized species level knowledge for that and that's still useful data because it tells us how the groups are doing compared to each other as a slightly more in-depth version we also have the one kilometer square survey which is sort of the upper tier of the POM surveys, if you like. The idea of that is that basically we know from things like the National Plant Monitoring Scheme what's going on in the wider landscape, uh, what plants are available, what plants are flowering, that kind of thing. We know to a certain extent what's going on with bees, but we want to know a little bit more about all of the species that are very easy to miss because they're small or they're difficult to identify or there's three people in the country who can identify them or you need specimens or whatever. And so the one kilometre survey is a lot more in-depth. It involves um, taking samples and that kind of thing at 75 one kilometre grid squares across the country, which are co-located with things like the National Plant Monitoring Scheme so that we know what's going on on the ground and we can relate that once we've got enough data to what's going on with the full pollinator guild and we can try and use those as indicator sites for what's going on uh, and matching that against the results coming out of bee walk and butterfly monitoring scheme and that kind of thing. So it sounds like the most involved one of these monitoring schemes in terms of uh, sort of uh, knowledge needed and time involvement is probably the one kilometer square surveys. Um, were the, are those one-offs or is that again sort of at, at intervals like the uh, bee walks? They are overall, uh, they have the advantage that we have got an awful lot of experts lined up to go through and work to identify the catches. But uh, certainly it's always useful to have more taxonomic knowledge to be able to identify things. The 1K square surveys aren't monthly, but they are periodic. So there's, there's a couple every couple of months, basically, through the year. So again, we get that full picture of how the pollinator community changes what you find in the spring is very different to what you find in late summer, for instance. And so it would involve um, 
being in a space and, and using a variety of different survey te techniques, is, is it something that happens, you could do it in a day, or is it something that requires a kind of a, a slightly larger chunk of time? Each survey um, takes about a day by the time you've got there. And because these are fairly randomly selected 1K squares, they aren't uh, going to be your local park, for instance. They tend to be uh, slightly less convenient for actually getting to. But uh, that means that we get a, a rather more unbiased picture of what's going on with pollinators more generally than if it's restricted to places that are convenient to get to. And that's why we have the other schemes, which are more into that gap. Okay, so it's is it something that also would suit um, like a group? So, for instance, if if I were uh, maybe a local environmental charity and I was interested in organizing maybe like a pollinator day, is it something where you could break up the um, different components and assign them to groups, people perhaps? Um, so you all kind of meet, everyone gets a briefing on what they're doing. Is it possible to do it that way, or does it require a, a bit more um, standardization than that? We've been trying to keep it relatively standardised, so I think um, we have pairs who've done it, but I'm not sure we'd want to go too much bigger than that. It gets a little bit confusing if you have different people recording, they'll see different amounts of things, so it's not really something which is, you can go out mob-handed and have 30 or whatever people doing it. Singletons or pairs are ideal, really. Right, so it's going to be for your keen kind of amateur naturalist kind of deal. Yeah, yeah um, that's very much the audience that we're pitching it to as um, basically it's a chance to sort of adopt that square and really get to know what's going on there. Right. So I guess the, the next one down sounds like it's the bee walks, which maybe requires a little bit less background information, but you need kind of uh, to be able to commit a bit more time because it's that monthly walk. Yeah. And time wise, it probably works out about an hour, maybe a couple of hours a month, depending on how long your walk is and that kind of thing. We recommend that it's about a kilometre long, which takes about an hour in midsummer if there's a lot of bees about and you're having to identify them. But equally in uh, March, you can probably whip round in about 20 minutes. So it does vary, but certainly you have to be able to identify slightly more species. It is open to anyone as long as basically you record the species that you are happy and able to record we have unknown bumblebee as a species and we encourage people to use that rather than taking a punt on something that they're 50% likely to know or whatever. But yeah, the more species, the more bumblebee species that people are able to identify, the more valuable that data will be ultimately. Right. So that was a question I was going to ask about the bee walks. It, it's called bee walks, but are you, is, are they actually counting bumblebees? Because there's, there's what, uh, 2030 ballpark bumblebee species and then another 200 plus sort of bee species in the uk is that right yeah there's 24 bumblebee species in britain several of those are very localized so you are likely to see the great yellow bumblebee for instance unless you are right up at the far tip of scotland generally there's about seven or eight species that make up 95 99 percent of the bees that you will actually see bumblebees that you'll see on a daily basis and certainly they're the ones that generally will be around in parks and gardens and farmland so they're not quite as complex as they appear when you first pick up the field guide but yeah they are capable of confusing you however good you are we do recommend that people have a bit of practice first don't necessarily go straight in from zero to bee walk overnight uh, we do run an awful lot of training days and that sort of thing and have a lot of resources online to try and help with that 
another say we have unknown bumblebee and that sort of thing as options so we do recommend that people obviously record the species that they're confident with that they see it's likely that that will be seven or eight species and they can pick those up relatively quickly but ultimately there is a level of taxonomic expertise that makes it slightly more difficult mm-hmm. but again as you mentioned the bumblebees aren't too bad to, so people shouldn't be put off by needing to id them because it's not too bad no not at all um there, as i say seven or eight species with a couple of different color forms once you get your eye in for those which you can do if you're looking at bees in your garden on a slightly regular basis and that'll be the vast vast majority of the bees that you'll see so they aren't as complex as it can appear then the uh the next one down from that would be the um the fit counts the flower what did that stand for again flower interval flower insect timed counts (laughs) flower insect timed counts and that was um that's it sounds a lot like the big butterfly count that happens every summer where you kind of pick a patch and just watch it for whoever shows up at the patch in in a few minutes time block yeah it's a very similar idea and Obviously, the data coming out of it fits the same kind of assumptions in terms of how hard you have to work to find things and that sort of stuff. And yeah, it's it's probably a close run thing between the fit counts and the ad hoc casual recording. Individual species can vary quite a lot. So some species are very difficult to identify and you need to have a specimen under the microscope. Other species are very easy and you can identify them as they fly past. So the casual recording varies from really low really easy species that's everywhere to the really difficult to something that's very hard to identify and you have to work really hard even to find it um fit counts is probably somewhere in the middle of that you don't need to be able to identify things to species particularly well it's designed as i said at a broad group level so as long as you can tell a bumblebee from a butterfly from a beetle you can do a fit count without too much difficulty it does potentially get a little bit tricky with some of the differences between uh, some of the really tiny wasps and that kind of thing. But in general, it's designed to be something which is suitable for people who aren't experts in the field to do, ultimately. And it's it's one of those things where, well, at least for me, and I think for, for a lot of younger kids out there, they kind of like being able to to pick apart the differences in things because it's kind of like they, they're let into like the secret code of like, oh, I recognize that. And then it becomes like a spotting game, which which they love. Massively, one of the original versions was um, as a family activity at the Open Farm Sunday days. Um, and it, it works really well as a school activity and as I said, at events and that kind of thing, because yeah, you're really letting the kids into the secret that there's a hell of a lot more to pollinators than the, <laughs> the media would otherwise let them know. Yeah. And the sitting in one spot and just watching something, that's just such a different experience of uh, a different way of engaging with nature than quite a lot of kids do, where you know they, they're running around playing games in the outdoors. They're kind of spending time there, but maybe not spending time paying attention to the details of what's going on. Definitely. And to be honest, it's possibly even more of a revelation for the adults, because they just taking that time to sit and look and watch and really see what actually turns up. People just don't realise it's there because you're buzzing around, you're busy, even when you're in your garden, you're doing things, you're playing with the kids, playing with the dog, whatever. Just taking 10 minutes just to sit and watch and really learn what's actually appearing blows people's minds. Yeah, yeah. 
So um, with those participants are just keeping a tally of the, the broad groups that they're spotting. Is it a beetle? Is it a bee? Is it a fly? Yeah, very much so. Um, we've got recording sheets and indeed now an app fairly recently, which has got helpful tips on ID and that sort of thing to these broad groups. But yeah, it's basically how many butterflies, how many beetles, that sort of level of detail. This brings me to, I guess, what what happens to all of this data that is collected by these different schemes. So there's the kind of more um, standardized data sets from the one kilometer uh, survey and the bee walks. And I imagine you can do, you, you could probably almost plug it into, you could almost use it as though it was collected by, you know, a professional entomologist or a researcher. How do you deal with the quirks, I guess, of, of handling <laughs> citizen science data, which can be a little bit uh, murky, perhaps, on some of the details. So, yeah, quality is always key, because if you if you haven't got the quality in the data, then all of your conclusions based on that are going to be nonsense. So we have, certainly for the bee walk data, all the data goes through a validation process. We make sure that the site is where it looks as if it ought to be. So if something has a place name in Cornwall, it's not got a grid reference from Scotland and that kind of thing. It's not in the sea somewhere. So it goes through that that overall validation process to make sure that all of the basic details are right. It wasn't recorded in the middle of the night and that sort of thing. And then we also go through a verification process. And that is basically checking that the record is accurate in terms of the identity of the species. So to do that for bee walk involves an awful lot of checking where these records are compared to, again, where they should be. I mentioned the great yellow bumblebee earlier, which is only really found on the Orkneys, the Outer Hebrides and the very tip of northern mainland Scotland. If we get a record of that from central London or Didcot or somewhere, we're going to go back to the recorder and just ask for proof ultimately and that's the basic pattern of it and so those don't make it into the final data set without just at least checking so we do know that there's a variety of recorders on there we know that there are international experts contributing records and so we would be fairly happy with most of the records coming in because we know that they can identify things we'll still go back and check if there are any that appear really left field because everyone can make a typo and it's very easy just to make a slip of the finger and put in a record for species X when you meant species Y. So we'll still check that. But we do also, we've got a bit of a handle on how well people are able to identify bumblebees. We, as I say, do a lot of training. We do a lot of quizzes and that kind of thing. So we can build up a bit of a picture of everyone has blind spots for particular species and how far advanced they are on that learning process. As I mentioned, there are some species which are very difficult. And so if we get a lot of records coming in from those, we will just go back and again, ask for photos, ask for evidence. How did they actually identify it? Basically, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. So we would look for ideally photos of things that are where they shouldn't be or out at a time when they shouldn't be and that kind of thing, because it's potentially important. It's potentially a big change in range or a change in what these things are actually doing. But equally, we don't want to make that claim if it isn't actually an accurate recording of that species in the first place. Yeah, it's always tempting to want to 
see something like really rare or something like, oh, it's the first time it's been recorded here. But if you think you maybe have the first recording, sometimes it's just wishful thinking and you're just... Uh... There's always a possibility for aspirational sightings. <laughs> it's always really difficult. You find something like, oh, maybe it's that, but it does have to be backed up with that evidence at the end of the day. So with the bee walks and with the one, well, with the one kilometer square surveys, there's actual collecting involved. With the bee walks, it's still recommended that people take photos of the things that they see um, just in case so they can verify things. Yeah. If you, if it's an unusual sighting, if it's listed as a rare species or whatever particular, then it's, it's likely that we'll be coming back to you at some point just to, just to check. Yeah. But with the fit counts and... Uh, but with the fit counts, it's it's just a tally. Um, or do you still recommend that people take photos of things? There's the option to submit photos for there, um, but as you say, it's a it's a tally, so we're not expecting a whole series of pictures of everything. Mm-hmm. But if there's something that you're not quite sure about, or just something that you want to evidence, basically, then uh, there's scope for photos. And if you've got a group of people, I guess you could have one person who's sort of photo person, one person who's tally person, and then you can kind of have everything covered because if yeah. you're too busy taking photos of something, you're going to miss a lot of other things that have come by to visit your patch, I guess. That's the thing. That's why we slightly soft pedal um, taking photos for that, amongst other reasons, just because uh, you can only do so much at any one time. And if you're trying to watch and record and photograph, as you say, you'll miss things. What kind of results have come out of these citizen science type monitoring schemes? You've been, you said that they've been going for, in some cases, decades with records going back, you know, more hundreds of years. Is there anything that's come out of the modern citizen science mass data input from the general public? So the casual recording, the Beeswell Finance Recording Society, Wars, started in the mid 70s. They pulled a lot of data out of museum collections and that kind of thing. And so a huge amount of what we actually know about what's happened to bumblebees has come from that. And that, again, is all citizen science data under the broad definition. The first real uh, atlas, distribution atlas of where all these bumblebees are was published in 1980 using that data. And we can see how things have changed since that point because of the spread of casual recording and that kind of thing. So even just that casual ad hoc data is really, really valuable. And that's telling us a huge amount about what's going on with the big picture of how these things are moving across the country and how the, the national ranges are changing and that kind of thing. But that is relatively broad, relatively long-term data. It's really, really valuable, but it doesn't tell you quite so much about what's going on now with the bumblebees. And so the organisation set up the bee walks in 2008 to start with, couple of scoping years went out to our members and then to the general public in 2010 and 2011. So we've now been going for around about 10 years. And with that data, because it's abundance data, a lot of people are counting the bumblebees. And because, as I said before, we know a little bit more about how the recording has been happening, we can start to look in a reasonable amount of detail about population level trends for these bumblebee species. We can see when they're appearing each year, when they're starting to disappear. We can get that idea of phenology and whether that might be changing. So we can look at the effects of things like really cold, wet springs like we have this year. What is the impact on the spring-flying bumblebee species? We obviously haven't run this year's data, but that's something we'll be looking at quite closely this time next year to see how much of an impact did it actually have um, on a slightly longer term. 
we can look at the population trends through the years. So as I say, at the moment, we've got about 10 years worth of data that we can look at and we can see if there are any obvious trends in abundance of species that we're particularly concerned about. So the uh, shrill carder bee is restricted to about five populations in south of England and Wales. It's a very endangered species. We're quite concerned about it. We can look at how that's actually doing. We know that it's had a really strong distributional decline from that casual ad hoc data. We can now combine that with how is it actually doing now on these sites? Are the sightings becoming fewer each year? Is the abundance declining? Or is it actually increasing on these sites? Um, and what it turns out is that that particular species, the shulkada, does seem to be doing quite well. It's actually increasing in terms of the number of records each year across the sites that we monitor it on. But other species aren't so lucky. And things like the um, Moscada bumblebee does seem to be declining in terms of the abundance. We're seeing fewer and fewer of it on the sites that are actually monitored for it each year, which is on top of an ongoing long-term distributional decline. It's found in far fewer sites than it used to be. And even at those sites where it still exists, it seems to be declining. There are fewer of it on the sites that do remain. So that's one of the species, for instance, that we're really quite concerned about, certainly in England and Wales. We do know, or we think that it does quite well up in the far north of Scotland, but there are fewer people up there, so we've got fewer bee walkers. It's great to hear that the results that these kind of monitoring schemes can really provide and, and how much it helps track how well and how poorly some of these populations might be doing. Because that's something that I've always wondered, because this past year I've been getting more into using uh, the ad hoc kind of platforms. So there's um, in the UK, there's iRecord and uh, iSpot, and then there's the global platform iNaturalists. Unfortunate to my mind that they all have such similar names. <laughs> With all of those platforms, more or less, you're kind of submitting an individual sighting, like I saw this one thing. iRecord, there's a um, facility to report approximately how many did you see, I think? But I think in iSpot and in iNaturalist, both of them, one photo is basically for one organism and there's no ability to give a sense of the abundance of them unless you're submitting like 10 records for the same site on the same day. Yeah, they're slightly different in the iNaturalist and to a greater extent iSpot are identification platforms um, where taking the records off is a slightly secondary purpose, whereas iRecord is is designed to be a replacement for your spreadsheet that you send in at the end of the season. So it is very much based around, you know what you saw, you put the record in. So as you say, you can put in abundance. I run a moth trap and so there's how many moths of each type I caught each night in there, for instance. And the other two are very much, yeah, one photo, one individual, one record. Oh, that's a that's a good way of thinking about the the different platforms. So if you're just really an interested amateur and you're just out there, you're, you're not maybe ready to commit to a full something. Um, iSpot and iNaturalist are basically to get advice on identifying something that you've seen. And then if you want to you know, dip your toe into recording things, there's, there's iRecord. That's the basic philosophy underlying them. There's, there's a lot of blurring the edges, but uh, because obviously you've got people checking what you're putting into iRecord, you can take records off iNaturalist, but the basic philosophy is that, yeah, if you're not sure what you've got, but you've got a picture, stick it onto iSpot or iNaturalist and it will help you out. Once you know what you've got, 
put that record on iRecord and it will make sure that it, it gets to everyone who works with data. Yeah, yeah. And I record it just because um, most of the listeners of this podcast I know are are actually US based. Um, but I have some UK listeners as well. But I record is, is set up to link to the UK biological monitoring scheme. So it's it's a UK, it's a very much UK platform. Yes, it's um, just UK as far as I'm aware. But it is basically a replacement, as I say, for sending in those records to the National Recording Scheme, to your local environmental record centre, to the whole database wildlife monitoring setup that we have in Britain that, as I said, has been around for donkey's years. And this is now trying to bring it slightly more into that information age and speeding things up. Yeah, yeah. And there is an app for, um, I think, all three of these. iRecord definitely has an app. iNaturalist yes. has an app, and that works quite well. Um, I think iSpot has an app as well. So it all certainly has are... had in the past, and I think that's still extant, yeah. Yeah. So uh, last question I had for, um, again, for UK listeners, because it's going to be a little bit tricky globally, but do you have any recommendations for um, people who are, who do want to get into getting to know bees and bumblebees a bit better? Like, do do you have go-to field guides, I guess, for, uh, I guess that you might use or that you might recommend for maybe like a family or a school group? Yeah, we're very lucky in Britain to have such a range of field guides and ID resources to choose from. Um, in terms of just bumblebees, then I have to go really for the BBCT ID book, uh, Bumblebees and Introduction, which is based on our experience of the best part of a decade of training people in bumblebee identification, uh, not just me, but across the rest of the organisation, really learning what the pitfalls were, what people were struggling with, and trying to put all of that down into book form. So it's got sections on how to identify it from the very similar species, loads of pictures of bees at different stages of where worn bumblebees can look very different to fresh bumblebees, queen bumblebees look different to males and that sort of thing. We tried to get all of that in there. I think that's a really good book, but I did help write it. So <laughs> probably slightly biased, but people do seem to get on with it really well and there's, it reviews very well and that kind of thing. So it's not just me as an author saying, buy this book. If you want to go a little bit broader and you want to look at all of the solitary bees and that kind of thing as well, the full 250 plus species, then a few years ago now, Steve Falk put out his uh, field guide to the bees of Britain and Ireland. And that is the only game in town, essentially. It's, it was the first book for about 100 years plus that covered all of the bees in Britain. And it still is pretty much the only one at any sort of reasonable price point. And it, it's really good. Yeah. The field guide bit is slightly misleading because a lot of bees you can't really do in the field, but you'll get as close as you can with that book. And a lot of the features that are mentioned in the books are not, I mean, for the for the interested amateur, they're not quite field characteristics because of the way in which at least 
uh, a lot of us interested amateurs will will interact with bees out there you kind of need to look at things like the veins on the wings and like shape of the mandibles and uh, most of the time we don't get quite close enough to do do that kind of uh detail yeah there's (laughs) there's always a limit on what you can see in the field but even if it just helps you guide which bits to get in shot in your photos and that kind of thing where you can do a lot more with things like wing venation and that sort of thing if you know you need to get it in shot it's a really good starting point as i say you're not going to get all of them to species with that without specimens but um it's going to be your best chance yeah definitely and i always find that um uh id guides that have been designed with the audience in mind at least for kind of a general audience tend to work much better than someone who's just jumping in like just interested and and want to jump into it leaping straight into one of those field guides um, because you it can be really overwhelming like getting your head around the terminology in the keys because often they'll refer to they'll use quite technical language referring to very specific part of the bees but general guide that's written for a general audience based on experience working with that audience i've always found works really a lot better and then you know use that guide for a little bit and you get used to it and then you take the next step into the the kind of field guide that uses the more technical terminology and gets into the details yeah massively there's always jargon associated with any particular group and keys are constructed in particular ways it's a tool you need to learn how to use that tool to best effect before you can then upgrade or move on to the next one now there's a few simplified bumblebee guides that I've seen around. I think the Bumblebee Conservation Trust had one out um a few years ago where it was just I think it was just the top maybe 8 or 10 species that you would see and they were very uh simplified reduced like line drawings with color bars and I think the Field Studies Council also has one of their many many flip fold out guides um which is bumblebees. How do you find those? when you compare them with with actually a book yeah um inevitably it's a trade-off so it's simplified um it does work reasonably well uh, certainly the um the big eight guide that you mentioned that bbct put out because those common eight species are going to make up the vast majority of the sightings then you can get a pretty long way just with that you do lose out a little bit there's a there's a massive ongoing argument about whether diagrams or photos are better. The basic answer is different people use things in different ways, and ideally you'd have both in vast profusion, but then you get the trade-off of it. it becomes a little bit more difficult to work out where the boundary is between all these different things. So it's a really good starter guide. Um, the Field Studies Council fold-out chart tries to cover all Bs, so there's a slightly odd selection of species in some of them it's not quite so much based around these are the ones that you'll see because there are some rarer species on there which you won't see basically unless you're looking for them but both of them if you have them in your garden and you're just looking at what's around they will give you a really good start and then as you say once you're happy with those you can move on to the next level and perhaps identify the ones that didn't quite fit any of the pictures on those first two guides and realize what the reason was for that is that because they weren't in there. 
that's interesting that you mentioned because the my thing with a lot of the um foldout guides is they they're tantalizingly convenient because they're you know they light they're lightweight flat pack so they fit into any bag but with some of them you're more likely to come across something that isn't on the guide than something that is on the guide their moths foldout guide for instance i always find is like you're more likely to see a moth that isn't on that guide than one that is but the their foldout butterfly guide i find really good because it covers basically all the common ones and it sounds like the bee guide maybe lands you a bit more to the side of you're more likely to come across something that isn't on the guide than is <laughs> yeah that would be that would be my main contention with them as well um some things like the ladybird guide for instance do cover all of the species and so if you've got a ladybird it'll be on there it works really well and similar to the butterflies where there's there's a handful of rare, really rare species that aren't on there but the vast majority of the things that you'll see will be on there but with moths where you've got two and a half thousand species in britain with bees where you've got 250 or so you're only ever going to capture a tiny fraction of that in any sort of intro guide and if you break that down and so you just cover all of the bumblebees for instance or all of the ladybirds rather than all of the beetles it can work as long as you know that that is what you've actually got and you can tell that it's it's not something else it's not some other bright shiny beetle it's not a hairy footed flower bee or something but um where you try and be a little bit optimistic and you try and cover everything, then you end up with, as I think we've got on the bee chart, you've got one of the small black bees in Genoflacia glossum. And in actual fact, there are about 40 of those in Britain. Several of them are very common. But if you only have that one field chart to refer to, it's only got one Lassia glossum species, and so you'll put everything down as that. And that doesn't really work in terms of ID. Well, well, we've covered quite a lot today. Thank you so much, Richard, for taking the time to walk us through these different monitoring schemes that uh, is run by the Bumblebee Conservation Trust. No trouble at all. And uh, I hope to see people getting involved with them over the near future. Well, again, thank you very much, Richard, uh, for taking the time to talk to us. And if you're listening and you want more information about the Bumblebee Conservation Trust and the various monitoring schemes that they're involved in, including how to sign up for a bee walk or for a one kilometer survey, if you're really keen into it, uh, you can check out their website and I will put links to that in the full show notes, which can always be found at knowingnaturepodcast.wordpress.com. If you've got any questions or comments, please send them in to knowingnaturepodcast.com at gmail.com find me on twitter at kn underscore podcast that's it for this episode thank you for listening <laughs>